Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End. Although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. Frances Marion Parker, affectionately known as Marion, was born October 11, 1915, to Geraldine and Perry Parker. She had a twin sister, Marjorie, and an older brother, Perry Jr. On December 15, 1927, a man claiming to be a co-worker of Marion's father, Perry, asked to take Marion to see her father, stating that Perry had been in a car accident and wanted to see his daughter. Marion is dismissed from her classes by the school. Strange that he didn't mention the father wanted to see Marjorie as well, nor did the school inquire about this. The school actually allows this unknown person to check Marion out. It would later be said that the man who came to for Marion seemed so sincere and even disarming. To that I say, what fresh new hell is this? Marion would be reported missing later that day. The very next day, the first of several ransom letters would arrive by telegram to the Parker house. The first telegram slash ransom letter from Pasadena demanded $1,520 gold certificates and said, do positively nothing till you receive special delivery letter, and it appeared to have Marion's signature on it. Very shortly after, another telegram ransom letter would arrive from Alhambra, read, Marion secure, use good judgment, interference with my plan, dangerous. This telegram would be signed, George Fox. Any communication the abductor sent to the family would be signed, fate, death, or the fox. More telegrams would follow very quickly. Very clearly stated in the letters, no one will ever see the girl again, except the angels in heaven. This letter signed fate and continued the Greek word for death at the top of the letter. Through the telegram correspondence, a meeting location would be established late in the evening for Marion's father, Perry, to deliver the ransom. Before Perry leaves to deliver the ransom, he records the serial numbers of all the bills, just in case they can be identified in any future exchanges, hopefully allowing the bills to be tracked by law enforcement and catch the abductor. Perry waits at the location for hours for nothing. The next day brings more of the same. Several more telegrams arrive. The first telegram that arrives expresses anger at Perry for letting the national press know of the situation. He also shames him for allowing the police to follow and spy on the exchange. Another telegram would state this day, December 17th, would be the last day before he would kill Marion. Attached is a letter written by Marion asking her father to comply with the abductor's wishes, which meant meeting with the abductor alone, no police. Perry tells all this to the police, and after much convincing, he is allowed to meet alone with the police. Fearing for his daughter's life, 
Perry was willing to take the chance on his own life. Two further telegrams arrive. First one reads, PM, Parker, please recover your senses. I want your money rather than to kill your child. But so far you've given me no other alternative. Signed, Fox Fate. The second telegram, Fox is my name. Very sly you know. Set no traps. I'll watch for them. Get this straight. Remember that the life hangs by a thread. I have a razor ready and I am able to handle the situation. Later that evening, Perry gets several phone calls from the abductor to establish a new meeting place for the exchange. At 7.15pm, the abductor calls for the last time, telling Perry to leave his house and meet him immediately to the new established location, assuring him that he knew Perry's car. Perry arrives just around 8pm, alone with his ransom money. He is confronted by the abductor a few minutes after he arrives. He was driving a Chrysler Coupe and pulls up next to Perry's car. He holds him at gunpoint with a sawed-off shotgun, a bandana covering most of his face. During the exchange, Perry sees Mary in the passenger seat. He calls to her, but she does not respond. She is concealed up to her neck with clothing. Her eyes are open. Perry assumes her abductor has possibly drugged her. Perry hands over the money. The abductor puts his car in gear, moves forward, pushes Marion out of the car, and then speeds away. It has been reported the abductor then yells, There's your daughter! before shoving Marion onto the street. It is at this moment Perry realizes that Marion is dead. He calls the police, they recover her body from the street and perform an autopsy, which is performed around 9pm the same night. Everything about the exchange went so wrong, so fast. The coroner would state that Marion had in fact been dead for 12 hours. Both her arms and both her legs were missing. She had also been disemboweled. Her lower torso had been stuffed with a towel of a man's shirt. Marion's eyes had been kept open by piano wires to give the illusion that she was still alive. The next morning, December 18th, a man walking in Elysian Park finds the remains of two arms and two legs wrapped in newspaper, lying scattered in the streets, small limbs as if belonging to a child. The remains are soon identified as Marion's. A massive manhunt for Marion's abductor turned killer would begin the very night she was found. It involved over 20,000 police officers and American Legion volunteers. A reward of $50,000 is offered for the capture of Marion's killer, dead or alive. Whoa. The reward would be later increased to $100,000. Thanks to contributions donated by the public, on December 20th, Marion's killer Chrysler was found abandoned and also been reported as stolen in San Diego. Fingerprints were lifted from the car door. Several suspects were considered at this time, but were all soon cleared as the person responsible for letting Marion go with her killer confirmed none of them looked like him. Working past my anger at this entire situation, I'd love to just lash out and say, what would she know? But for the moment, since she did have a valuable insight, I will bite my tongue. 
Police trace a mark on the towel stuffed in Marion's torso to the Bellevue Arms Apartments, where they would interview several tenants. The fingerprints that were lifted on the Chrysler would lead back to 19-year-old William Edward Hickman, born February 1, 1908, and a former co-worker of Perry Parker. Both Perry and William worked at the same bank in Los Angeles, where Perry was an assistant cashier and William was an officer. A year prior to Marion's murder, William had been arrested on a complaint made by Perry. William had stolen and forged checks equaling $400. William was convicted and sentenced to probation. He spent six months living with his family in Kansas City, Missouri, before going back to Los Angeles. Other fingerprints were lifted from the ransom letters and positively identified as Williams. It was uncovered that he was a recent tenant in addition to the Bellevue Arms Apartments, moving in under the false name of Donald Evans. An examination of his apartment would reveal bloody footprints, possibly indicating a crime. Partly burnt handwritten ransom letters as well as newspaper clippings surrounding the abduction and murder are also found in the apartment. Other tenants in the building would later state that William wasn't home when the other tenants were interviewed, so they missed that one. Also, they interviewed a janitor who said that William was carrying several packages to the Chrysler. The day after Marion disappeared and shortly after wiping down the car, he was spotted traveling north driving a green Hudson. Wait for it. That was reported solely in Los Angeles. Um, what? So out of character. The first hit comes. The ransom bills the Perry Marks see some light. In Seattle, Washington, William will use two of the $20 gold certificates at a haberdashery to purchase clothes on December 21st. Slight delay in reporting. William is spotted in Albany, Oregon, getting gas. He was reported to the police by a gas station attendant who saw an article in the paper saying that he was most likely driving a green Hudson. William is spotted in Portland, Oregon on December 22nd, again getting gas. The gas station proprietor reports to police that he indicates the direction he left was east towards Columbia River Gorge. William had gotten rid of the Hudson, California plate for a Washington plate. William is arrested on December 22nd, 1927 in Echo, Oregon, after a frantic car chase. Officers had recognized him from wanted posters. 1,400 of the ransom gold certificates from Perry are discovered in the Green Hudson. At the time William is arrested, he tells the arresting officer, Some fiend killed her. I don't know who he is. Right before stating, Um, I did it because I wanted to pay off my way through college. While detained in a county jail in Oregon, William confesses to only participating in the abducting of Marion. He had two accomplices who in fact carried out the murder. He told a detailed account to a journalist about the participation but how he did not commit the murder. He claims that he actually spent time with Marion, making her comfortable going to a couple movies with her. He took responsibility for the telegrams the ransom notes, and all the phone calls, but the murder was not his doing. Police find these statements to be an impossibility seeing how the two accomplices he had implicated were already serving time in prison and could not have carried out Marion's murder. He said he didn't do it.
The police said he did. The police were like, well, what about the blood in your apartment? William said, that isn't evidence of a crime. Push were like, well, kind of is. William is extradited back to Los Angeles. He confesses to another unrelated murder and a few armed robberies. He then also realizes that his sham of a story involving his imaginary accomplices isn't to be believed. Only then does he explain the most gruesome details of Marion's murder. And this is what really happened. He, he abducts Marion, takes her back to his apartment, he blindfolds her and ties her to a chair. He strangles her until she is unconscious. He then decides to hang her body upside down over his bathtub. He slits her throat and lets her body drain of blood. He cuts off her arms, then cuts off her legs, and then disembowels her. During this most horrific action, the body jerks with such force it flies from hanging over the tub. This suggests it's very, in a very real way, Marion may have still been alive. He wraps the arms and legs individually in the scattered newspaper that will soon be discovered in Legion Park. (sighs) Temporarily storing the torso in a suitcase. He did go see a film, Yes Alone, where he couldn't focus and cries throughout. Whatever, cry me your river, you selfish murderer. It's only later that William realizes that Marion's father, Perry, may in fact want to see his daughter alive when they meet for the exchange. Sounds like someone didn't get whipped with the smart stick. Mm, what a selfish dummy. So he attempts to reconstruct a living Marion. William assures the police that Marion felt perfectly safe. It happened so sudden and so unexpectedly to her, so she didn't suffer. What a dick. Enter the conspiracy corner. this was his fault. He was under the direction of a supernatural deity named Providence, so enter the guilty by insanity plea, well naturally. The defense pleads his mental illness and blames this influence on his grandfather's zealot. William had been exposed to countless religious exorcisms, therefore bringing to light an urge to dismemberment and mutilation. Um, what? Guilty by insanity plea was very new in California at this time. So despite him telling police he needed the ransom money for college, and that he also asked others at the county jail how to act crazy, and a psychologist testifying his mind seemed clear, after all of that, his plea is still guilty by insanity. Couldn't it be a matter of revenge? He was upset that Marion's father, Perry, had turned him in for his fraud. Or maybe he wanted to be famous? Either way, he will still be remembered as a dick. Jurors are not fooled by his testimony. In February 1928, he is sentenced to death by hanging. 
He files an appeal and is denied. At the end, of, he, at the end, he embraces Roman Catholicism and writes apology letters to the families of his victims. On October 19, 1928, William is hanged in the gallows of San Quentin Prison. While falling through the gallows trapdoor, he smacks his head and his neck doesn't break. He hangs there while his body is violently jerking and twitching. It takes about two minutes for him to die. Of choking? Um, sounds like karma. Later that year, a conceptual book is attempted to be written to make William seem like a brilliant, unusual, exceptional boy, and that society had turned him into a senseless monster. Yeah, society did that. Due to society judging the crime, and not simply on his defiant refusal to accept conventional morals, so murdering is not a crime, but a non-acceptance of a conventional value, and what value would be that Exactly. Being a dick? The book never becomes a book. Good. My hope is that no one has to live in fear ever. As always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on. Internet mostly. Thanks to wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>